You are listening to Talking Images, the official podcast of icmforum.com. Well, hello everyone. I'm Chris, and in this episode, we are talking about a kind of rebirth, what some have called a comeback. Others simply a return. A return to fiction. A return to the big awards and talk shows. And yes, a return for those who worship the throne of the author theory to signing his name and his alone, at least on the biggest properties. Yes, after more than a decade of co-directing, be it as entirely anonymous with the Zika Vertov group or with Gorin and then finally Anne-Marie Meeville, a partnership that would continue but on a smaller scale, Jean-Luc Godard was once again going solo. And a line of A-listers from across Europe and beyond were queuing up to work with him. I mean, he got everyone from Molly Ringwald to Dooley Delphi to Burgess Meredith to Woody Allen. And, and, and that's just one film that will probably not even mentioned there, or at least just mentioned in passing. Godard was on fire, but was it truly a return or something new? This was a decade Godard claimed to make his second first film. His films moved, pounded and breathed differently. More than once, it seemed to grasp for something elusive. Uh, the ideas could seem grander, bolder. Yes, he broke back into Breathless or Band of Outsiders territory with you know, the constructions of genre cinema with films such as First Name Carmen and Detective. But the building blocks were a bit different, and many of them were part of what he developed in his 1970s video art. Here testing how they worked on a bigger screen, and at least to this viewer, with great success. Oh, and he managed to piss off millions, if not billions, let's test that claim, with Hail Mary, his probably most controversial film. In this episode, we'll talk about his five biggest films from the 1980s. Every Man for Himself, Passion, First Name Carmen, Hail Mary... And Detective. I- I'm sure we'll mention others as well. And while doing this, we'll also explore just what Godard does with us in these films. What he does with cinema. His constant search and reinvention. Killing cinema so it can be reborn again. Always exploring the question of what cinema can be. So, uh, for those of you who listened to our 70s episode and heard this uh, heavily biased and overly enthusiastic intro, uh, you'll know that Godard is my favorite uh, director, so I I probably won't be able to contain my excitement that well in this episode. Luckily, I know Saul is a bit uh, colder, but uh, the person I'd love to hear from first is uh, Mathieu, as uh, he watched four of these films for a very first time this week. So, uh, Mathieu, I just have to ask, what, what was that experience like for you? Um, I guess if I had to sum it in one word, uh, it might be frustration. <laughs> but th- there was, I think, interestingly, regarding our, our 70s episode, when we did that, so I hadn't seen anything by Godard after the 70s at that point. 
And I was, I remember in that episode, I don't remember if I said it, but I certainly thought, well, if only Godard like kind of embraced his talent for aesthetics, right? Uh, his knack for finding like beautiful images to film, for yeah, just for putting the camera in the right place and exercise that in just a slightly more conventional manner. Not, non, doesn't have to be really conventional. And he basically did that in the 80s. And the results yeah, exactly. are varied, I would say. But uh, he basically did what I wanted him to do. So I can't complain, I suppose. He took your advice uh, 50 years or 40 years uh, <laughs> before you gave them. Yeah, I guess my advice was pretty obvious. <laughs> and uh, what about uh, you, Sol? What's your experiments or, shall we say, summarization of uh, Godard's 80s work? So other than... Uh... Every Man for Himself, all the other films that I watched for this podcast were rewatches. So I guess the word that comes to mind probably for me is disappointment, although a lot of them are films that I hadn't seen for over a decade, so I only had vague memories of them, and I'd seen his 70s work in the meantime. So I guess for me, none of his 80s films are anywhere near on par with Numero Du and Tuva Bien. I think those are just uh, absolutely fantastic films, although obviously nowhere near as great as something like Contempt. So, I mean, those 70s films are just absolutely amazing when I saw those a couple of years ago when we recorded that podcast. And I guess I was sort of hoping to be blown away to the same degree when I revisited these 80s films, and I wasn't. Look, they're all interesting. There's nothing that I hated there. There's nothing that I disliked or thought was mediocre. They've all got interesting elements that just don't quite do it for me the way that his earlier films tend to do. Yeah, that's fair enough. And just for the record, I mean, I read your uh, reviews and I saw your ratings. I mean, these, these are all films that you consider relatively good or at least sorry, relatively great or at least very good, right? Yeah, all, all of them except for Detective, which I didn't actually end up re-watching, are mm -hmm. all films that are considered to be very good. But then the two 70s films that I named earlier, films that yeah. I consider to be excellent, and then you've got Contempt, which is one of the 100 best films ever made. So I guess to me it's just sort of like he's sliding down in quality, especially when you've got something like Forever Mozart in the 90s, which I just didn't like at all. <laughs> it sort of, I guess, feels to me that he's like... Uh, I mean, his films are still interesting or whatever, but I guess for me, I guess maybe peaked a bit early on. I don't know, personal opinion. But I, I always felt like, even obviously he made so many films in the 60s, that that's just the insane amount of films and the success rate was high. I, but I actually think that his later period was at least more interesting. And I, I'm someone who actually has first name Carmen in his uh, top 100 and Detective is not that far outside. So that's going to be a really fun <laughs> discussion uh, later on. But, but before we get uh, into that, uh, uh, Mathieu kind of uh, talked about this a little bit uh, earlier Earlier, when it said that Godard followed his advice, he just took those techniques and he implemented them in something a little bit more conventional and mainstream, if you will, or at least something more uh, a standard fiction film without the heavy uh, politics or experimental backdrop. But what is it with these 80s films that's so different? Because to me, they, they really feel like the work of slightly different directors. A little bit explosive. You have these complete shifts in the, 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 like the soundscapes all the time. Music blowing up and disappearing, being swallowed. Sometimes just going over the actors as they speak. Or 
essentially what we see on screen and what we hear being completely different from each other. He has this kind of editing technique that he really developed uh, a lot in the 70s where images fade into each other or uh, you quickly shift from one image to another and the context change a, a lot. It is, it, it's, it almost feels like a new cinematic language in a way that you never see from any other director and I just absolutely love it not to mention the fact that all of these films we're talking about today are i think in the 69 format like the the, the tv format the square format and it does so much with it that you generally don't see yeah it's interesting because what you mention as being the work of a different filmmaker what all of the kind of the playing around with music the freeze frames etc that what that is what felt familiar to me i mean it didn't do exactly this stuff in the 60s and 70s but you know generally messing around with format and with with style that is that is what we think yeah that is good art it's true yeah and i'm not saying it's completely new for me i think this is kind of the stuff he really developed in the 70s but you know to see them put into a fiction film essentially it's just it's really interesting to see on that scale yeah, I actually thought the, the, the reverse, when I, when I watched Sauf qui peut, uh, so Every Man for Himself, I immediately, I thought, wow, this looks like a Claude Sauté film. I mean, this looks like, you know, uh, if you don't know Claude Sauté, uh, uh, yeah, but just kind of basic, prestigious films made in, in this period, right? Uh, the, the kind mm. of films that would win awards. But then there's random freeze frames in there, so I'm, I'm like, okay, okay, this is Godard, okay. <laughs> <laughs> So, so yeah, that's what that's you're describing it. Yeah, so this is, this is Kodar after all. And uh, we might just dive straight into every man for himself then, or slow motion as it's uh, called in the UK and uh, I think some other English-speaking countries as well. Because this was the film that uh, Godard dubbed as his uh, second uh, first film. I, I think it's the first film he did uh, solo since the 60s. Like you say, th th there's some more dramatic elements there, but it's, it's also... Almost a bit too experimental in some way, and it has this central technique of slow motion that I actually feel didn't always work. I'm sure we'll dive into that one. For a really quick summary, it's a story split in two, and it's a film where... Well, that really got some big stars, uh, stars on board. Uh, he got uh, Jacques Ducont and uh, Natalie Bay uh, playing a on-again, off-again couple, probably on their final off. <laughs> and you have the story where Isabel Hubert uh, plays uh, a prostitute. Both of these sections kind of get 40 minutes each. There's some overlaps. A lot of slow motion, and I guess you could say that it's a continuation a little bit of the more domestic politics that Godard was uh, doing with Meville in the 70s, but obviously in a dramatic form, uh, and there's some <laughs> rather excessive or, uh, shall we say, off-putting or just shocking uh, comedy remarks there as well. A lot of talk about sex and asses, uh, <laughs> and uh, some of the uh, prostitution elements there in particular uh, go a bit... Uh, far into uh, fetish land. So what's your uh, experiences with the every man for himself? Um, well, this was my favorite by far of the films uh, that I saw for this oh, episode. And I actually thought in this case that the, the, the whole freeze frame thing was actually meaningful and went with what Gouda was trying to say, or at least what I got from the film, which for later films, I must say, I just didn't quite get on his wave, wavelength. But for this one, I, I kind of did, at least for the, the Isabelle Huppert part, particularly. 
It's, it's, it's divided in four parts, right, this movie. And I think the first and the third one are, are the ones that worked best for me. The first one is where we see uh, Natalie Bay kind of riding around in Switzerland, kind of interviewing people. It's not super clear. She's either writing a, a novel or, or an article. I, I'm not sure I fully get that. But the way he shoots that is incredibly beautiful. And you have this idea of this uh, screed against work. I, th I think that's kind of the the central idea of the film. And it's a little present also in the domestic part of the movie, but less so. And and I found that part a little less interesting. The, the freeze framing, I saw it as being kind of this playing with time, which I think is an idea he plays with here in, in that human beings being alienated by work and how they still find humanity within that and how work takes away your time. You know, I, I, I think that's the idea that's being explored here. And I'm not saying that as the uh, super clear and coherent point being made, but I thought especially the Isabel Père parts playing with, you know, humiliation of the worker, in this case the sex worker, but I think the idea is that she's kind of, it's kind of allegorical for work in general. I thought that was, yeah, really, really a great uh, segment. Yeah, I agree. And something that was actually uh, maybe even better than, than what I saw in the 70s, even well, on the level, on par with Numero 2 for me. But then the, the whole part with uh, Jacques Dutronc, who plays, well, Godard, or at least a character named Godard. Well, Paul Godard, which, which is his father's name, which is also interesting. Oh, I, I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah, there's a lot of provocation in there. I guess there's a lot of provocation, you might say, in the Isabelle Huppert part as well. But I guess I did not find it as meaningful uh, when, it, when it came to... I, I just thought it was kind of playing around. Oh, look, I'm having this character <laughs> named after myself. Uh, I don't know. I, I didn't really get that part. I, I completely agree, actually. I think the Jacques de section of the film is the weakest by far. I mean, there, there's some fun jokes in there. And uh, there's this part where Margarita Ross is, you know, definitely there, but he's not. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Some of this... And, and just, just for, for context, right, Margarita Duras was like a huge part of French media at the time. Like she was on TV mm. all the time. I mean, she, she was a major personality, unlike Godard, who was living like a hermit in Switzerland. But there are a lot of Duras references. I think it references her film, The Lorry, a lot with some shots. But these scenes where she's meant to be there, it's like someone leaves the classroom to share, like this presentation with the, where Paul Godard is holding. He's like brought Duras to show and tell kind of thing. And she's not coming in and she refuses to go in and they don't believe him. And they go out and check to see if she's there. It's like, yeah, she's definitely there. But she never shows up in the movie. So there's some of that stuff. But no, I think I completely agree with you. The Natalie Bay section at the beginning is great, and the Hubert section, that's, that's just phenomenal. I think that's the circle of humiliation is, is so strong. And I think Hubert, both in this one and Passion, because she plays in, in both films, she gives a better performance that, you know, I think almost a Godard film, I'm not going to say deserve, but I think Godard films are so much more about the cinematic language than performances, usually. I'm not even sure if he sees characters as characters necessarily. Often more like symbols. And I think uh, Hubert just, she kills it in this film. Her performances in both films are, are phenomenal. And there's this cycle of, oh, we talked about this, constant insults, both from, uh, both from the pimps. And then when, you know, she does these tricks and like, it's almost this, this one boss who kind of designs a soundscape of perversion. That's, that's just an incredibly unique scene, which is so multi-layered, which, you know, which ends up with her putting, uh, lipstick uh, on his mouth. That's one of those things that are probably going to stick with me for a long time in terms of just how that plays out. It's quite interesting to hear that both of you 
found the part with the poor Goddard character to be the weakest part of the film because I guess for me it's the most interesting part. I mean, the character's name, Goddard, I didn't realise at the time it was named after his father, but just the way he presents this character as being such a famous and celebrated director, they've got this, like, hotel uh, bellboy or whatever at the beginning running out to him and begging him to have sex with him. And it's sort of like, is this Goddard's ego that he sees himself as being so celebrated that anybody would like want to go out and want to have uh, sex with him? But then again, if you're saying, well, this character actually isn't Godard, but Godard's father, then it actually paints a very different picture on things, especially with some of the things that the character says or whatever. There's parts of the film where he's like talking with his daughter's football coach about whether or not it's right to have fantasies of doing things to your daughter and stuff like that. And if you're saying, well, that's Goddard's father and he's having fantasies about doing sexual things with his kids, well, it just puts a whole different layer onto it, which I don't know is intended or not. I mean, the whole film for me, I think, is a film about sexual perversions. I mean, that's the main thing that got out of it, whether it be the stuff with the Goddard character and the hotel uh, bellboys coming on to him, whether it be the fantasies that he talks about, whether it be the stuff with the uh, sex workers at the end. I mean, I think the foursome, which is dreamt up for the film, is just absolutely incredibly crazy. I mean, that, that's definitely, for me, the most striking scene of the film. We've got these four people very complicatedly set up so they're all doing something in sync with each other. I think, you know, it's just um, one of the um, uh, greatest, like, statements on how, like, crazy sexual perversion can actually be. Uh, the other thing which I do think the film is about, I mean, it is called slow motion, or at least on the artificial eye DVD front cover of the version of the film that I've got. Uh, it is about, you know, that slow motion. And like, like Mature said, those freeze frames are definitely quite meaningful. I like what he said about it being sort of like about how work steals your time. And there is this great quote in the film, moments still exist, although horribly stretched out in one's mind. So it's sort of like Goddard playing around with, you know, our perceptions and how much we remember. So he's like stretching that really elongated shot of the woman riding along on a bicycle, super slowed down, just to sort of ingrain that in our mind more than maybe some of the stuff would go along a bit quicker. Uh, in terms of the overall film, look, I, I guess I found it a bit jarring when it was going up between the characters because there are a few characters that it's uh, following around there. So it didn't quite strike me the same way as his other 80s films but you know i liked it i mean uh, i liked it more than detective didn't like it quite as much as the other three that we're going to be discussing and the one thing i wanted to bring up as well because uh, both of you talked a little bit about how this prostitution section is clearly an allegory for work and you know with that if you can call it orchid you know this really composed sex scene which the boss sets up i mean I, I, you, you can't help but think of the division of labor either with each person doing you know one specific uh, task <laughs> and a result I, I, I think that's a really interesting perverted image of it yeah, I think it's a really strong image in, in, in that way. What, uh, I, actually, Saul said it's about perversion. Weirdly, I don't really think it's much about sex, right? <laughs> I think it's like automated work, right? uh, as you said, like specialization. I, I, yeah, that, that's mostly how I see it. And that scene is very striking. I think that's why we all are mentioning it. Yeah, it's sort of like the all parts of like one machine or whatever, going back to the uh, factory scene that we see earlier on. They're all like performing like one function or whatever to make the whole thing work overall. 
Yeah, there's plenty of like small moments, right? There's this um, kind of tracking shots uh, where you see cows eating. I mean, it's it's an image you've seen a lot, but it's in the context of Godard, it really made me think of his tracking shots at the end of Tout Va Bien, right, with the supermarket. It's just a small moment, and there's all, all of these moments with Natalie Bay, like uh, biking. It's just visually such a striking film in a way that I, I don't feel like the other films that we're going to talk about, talk about are, but maybe you guys feel differently. I do disagree, but uh, before we go on to them, I think uh, I just want to dive in a little bit more into uh, the main, I'm not going to call it gimmick, but like like I said, or like I said specifically, in the UK this was simply called slow motion, and slow motion kind of goes through it. And w one of the things that's interesting with the way Godard uses slow motion is that they kind of, it doesn't just transform time. It's not really interested in that. It's, it, it, I think it's beyond what we talked about with moments being stretched out. I think it's also interesting how things can be seen differently if it's slowed down or how things can change meaning. I think one of the slow motion scenes that stood out the most for me, and which is often uh, quoted and, and shown on uh, TV or in the, the dissection, is that scene where uh, well, Paul Goddard jumps over the table at his ex and they just both fall down on the floor and it's played with this kind of drastic music, uh, if I recall correctly, and you kind of hear these sound effects of things clinking around, but it's really slowed down to the point that you're not sure if they are fighting or if it's some kind of example of love and something more romantic, perhaps. And this is this kind of scene that with a lot of these slow motion scenes, um, you kind of, you're not 100% sure what you're seeing or how you're meant to be seeing it. And I've, I found that a really interesting idea, if that's what he's going for. But, like I said earlier, it, the, the payoff and how well it worked differed a little bit throughout the film for me. I think it's a technique that's really interesting, but didn't work in every single instance for me. I guess one of the things I'd say is, uh, what, what, do you, what did you guys think about the end? Because I thought the um, car accidents at the end, I thought that may have been, you know, I mentioned Claude Souté earlier. I thought that may have been kind of a parody of um, <laughs> Les Choses de la Vie, right? which is a Claude Sauté film, <laughs> which is all about... Oh, yes, you're yeah. right. I didn't think about that at all. I mean, it, it, <laughs> I, I, mean I, I actually like Claude Sauté. I, I, I know he's a bit derided in, in uh, France sometimes, a bit like Lelouch. To, to be clear, I do like Claude Sauté quite a bit, and, mm. and I like Les Choses de la Vie, but it is true that people like Godard hate Claude Sauté with a passion. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, it is. <laughs> he's like, he embodies everything they hate, uh, mm. basically. So, so, so I thought that may have been pointed, and and then there's the, this really final image which I saw. You know, you have this uh, the mother and the daughter from the Paul Godard story that are kind of going away uh, hand in hand. I thought that was very Chaplin-like, like, like uh, you know, the end of modern times, which has an actress named Godard. I don't know. <laughs> that was a small connection. Is, is, is it Paulette Godard? I, th I think that's the name of the actress in modern times. Yes, it's Pollock Godard. Yes, it's just a coincidence. I, I know, but Godard knows that, right? So. <laughs> well, spelled differently, but that's true. <laughs> okay, fair enough. I, I think you're saying it's a parody of Sauté. It, it's, uh, that makes me like the ending more, almost. I mean, it, it feels like, and this is how I feel about some of Godard's older films from the 80s, is that it's, it's a lot of glimpses of different ideas kind of put together. And I don't really know how I feel about this ending yet. My thought also went back a little bit to uh, Breathless, almost like a semi-satire of the ending of Breathless, where you also have a character kind of falling down in traffic towards the end, especially since he's saying it's his second first film. It's an interesting image, and especially with his family kind of just walking away from him. It's like it doesn't matter to us anymore. 
which, which I guess plays in with the English title Every Man for Himself uh, as well. I just want to say I absolutely love the connection you've made between the title and that final image. And yeah, it is, you know, pretty insane word of he's just lying there, possibly dying, and everybody else is carrying on, which I guess is sometimes part of life. Yeah, by the way, the, the title in French, Every Man for Himself is a good translation of it. I don't know, the slow motion title in the UK is like, clearly seems to be a UK invention. Makes sense, but... Very good to know, yeah. Uh, and I think it's worth noting too that Godard actually made a experimental documentary about this film as well, where he kind of switched up the title, but it's not available in English uh, with English subtitles. I think it's the only feature-length uh, Godard that's not available. So one day I hope to uh, be able to see that. But I think we can probably move on to his second feature film of the 80s, Passion from 1982. His first of a set of films, uh, sometimes called the trilogy of the sublime, which focusing in on a lot of religious ideas, it focusing on a lot of almost transcendental uh, visuals. A, a good comparison point, point for this one is also contempt. So if uh, slow motion is, uh, you know, his, his second first film, like uh, passion might be, you know, his his uh, attempt to redo or approach something similar to contempt. He wants to again have a film within a film, just like in slow motion, you have sprawling stories, and just like in slow motion, you have a large A-list cast. Isabel Hubert returns, uh, this time as a factory worker. Michel Piccoli, famously also in Contempt, is back collaborating with Godard. And he actually got two international stars. Hanna Schigula, famous German actress, perhaps most iconic for working with Fassbinder, and uh, Jerzy Radziwolowicz, however you pronounce his name, the Polish uh, star, who of course uh, worked with Wajda uh, and, and others. And he just created this large sprawling narrative of a factory owner, his wife, a worker, a filmmaker, all of these things tying together. Just like in slow motion, you get this kind of idea of work where the film set is really just like the factory in so many ways. You have incredible tableaus shooting just these beautiful living images of these famous, famous paintings. And a center that's kind of moving around. It's funny, it's fast, it's attempting to reach something that, uh, I mean, I I'm not sure if it quite succeeds at grasping. Uh, and in so many ways, it's just larger uh, than, than life. What did you think about Passion, Sol? Passion, for me, is the best of Godard's 80s films. I guess that's not surprising because I consider Contempt to be his very best film and it's the closest he's come to making a film like Contempt. I'm also really into films that are about troubled movie shoots and production issues with shooting films. I find that incredibly interesting, as we'll find out when we get to our best films of 22 podcast. Uh, one of the films I'm going to mention there is going to be one that has production shoot issues. And, I mean, that's part of what it's about. I mean, there are some interesting things in, like there's a deaf-mute actress and the director's trying to give her instructions and the other person's like, well, why does it matter if she's a deaf-mute because she doesn't actually say or do anything, but then he can't actually direct her because she can't hear and she can't reply. Well, what's probably interesting thing about the film is that the film that he's making within the film is just based on all of these really famous paintings and there isn't really a big storyline and yet he's constantly pressured by other people saying, you know, you really need to have a story in there. What is your film about? 
which is sort of a bit similar, I guess, to the Fritz Lang film Within Contempt that he's making. It has these beautiful images, but people can't really understand what it's about. I mean, you don't really have anybody that's like the Jack Palance character there, but it's sort of a similar dynamic. You've got this director there who's trying to make this great film that nobody can understand. And I mean, there's some parts in there which are even borderline ridiculous or whatever. You've got these cardboard cutouts of buildings and you've got these horses that are riding through them. They're just like massively much bigger than what the buildings are. And uh, I mean, what he's doing on there, I mean, you could see the artistic beauty behind it but yeah you could also understand the frustration of the people who are working with him who want to try and understand what it's about so look i just find all that quite interesting i think like the film's very existence is actually even a bit of a contradiction because the whole idea of the film is it's pushing towards having beauty on screen i mean that's why i've got all the nudity there it's not just because goddard likes nude bodies i mean i'm sure he does there's tons of all his films but, you know, it's about having a film that's about beauty rather than about a story. And yet at the same time, Godard is presenting us a film that actually is a story rather than just pure beauty. And that's something I find really interesting. That's a beautiful way of putting it all. And I, I did also rewatch his uh, scenario, the film Pashon, which is like a twin film he did. And one of the things he said, which actually surprised me in that, and I had forgotten, is that, you know, the director keeps being asked, what the story uh, is. And apparently the way Godard kind of saw it is that he was kind of looking for a way to tie these images together, but he couldn't, which is part of the reason why the director was uh, frustrated. And uh, some of the things with all of these sprawling ideas and all this chaos around him was that they wanted to surround this director with stories. So there was just so many stories around he could have either taken inspiration from or, or you know, understood, but he just didn't. But, but, but like you said as well, it, it is a story and it's multiple stories. Um, it, it's also a film filled with quotes. It, it's a film that almost feels a little bit overstuffed with ideas apart. Uh, it, it's obviously part of the idea. But, but the things that really stood out to me, uh, at least, was what you talked about there, Saul, with this you know, ridiculous film set, which is just fully, like, it's kind of this just beauty for beauty, uh, often just surreal, uh, with the horses just riding through the paper cutouts and it's taller than the buildings. And uh, I really, really love the way, you know, yes, you have these, these beautiful tableaus, you have these living images, and then you just kind of pan over them, especially when they're off shoot, and you just kind of scroll down, and you see people sitting at desks, taking calls, you have this person who's just, like, uh, working so hard, he's, he, he's sweating, like, you kind of just see the backstage of the production, and, and, and like, the contradiction is really interesting to me, and, and there's just so many really funny scenes, like, you have this producer who comes in, like, where did my money go, like, what are you making here, like, where did all, like, what did you spend my money on, and the director has to go around pointing things out, like, okay, this camera was 600 euros, these cutouts uh, here were like a three, three or no, three francs or whatever it is. It's saying I don't remember the currency. Uh, like lighting, three hundred thousand actors. And it just goes through this list, and it's <laughs> it's just a really special scene. So mature. What did you think of Passion? I'm sorry, that's the one I, I didn't see. So yeah, I, I I watched the the next two films, but but not this one, unfortunately. It sounds like I might have liked it better than. <laughs> Then Prénom Carmen, probably, but, but we'll talk about that. Oh, yeah, that would be interesting. If you like that one the least, that's the one I like the most. Uh, there's probably just one other thing that I might mention, which I find interesting. On Letterboxd, at least, um, not on my DVD front cover, but on Letterboxd, the film is actually called Godard's Passion, which is kind of interesting because uh, when I rewatched it, it was the first time I'd seen it in yeah, over a decade. 
and I was going, oh, maybe there's a strong connection to, you know, the passion of Joan of Arc or whatever, which I didn't realise. And I didn't think there was really that strong a connection. I just think it's interesting the film sort of promoted as being Godard's passion, which does, I guess, allude to some religious elements, passion of Christ maybe, but I didn't really see, I guess, much of that in there myself. I'm guessing they named it Godard's Passion just because there are a lot of films named Passion, passion or Passion. I, I just think that's it. I mean, I, I do, I would guess, just looking at the title, obviously having, having not seen the movie, I would guess that it's a religious thing, right? That it's a reference to Passion of the Christ, but uh, I guess, I don't know if that makes sense. I don't think they actually do that scene in particular, but there are there is religious imagery in the film, especially with a lot of the paintings that are brought to life. And there is, I would say, something in this kind of almost transcendental thing Goulart is kind of gripping at, where, you know, the visual beauty and this kind of grand ideas, which can relate to the passion, but it's very fleeting and it's something that uh, is not that direct you can say it, it, it's, it's something a little bit a little bit different and that's something that's not necessarily special with passion in, in, in amongst collage 80s films because a lot of them also had this kind of idea that it's kind of grasping for something or trying to bring something new or elevated onto the, the screen but like we talked about as well this is part of what some people are dubbing the trilogy of the sublime which does tie in with some christian ideas and he was actually interested in going back uh, to some of the ideas from the Bible and some uh, philosophical ideas. Uh, well, one thing he said in Scenario to Film Passion is that he didn't actually start with the script. He wanted to see the script, or rather he wanted to see the, the, the scenario. So he got the actors together, he had like some idea of what they wanted to do. But he essentially just started to have them act and see how they would move. And then the film just drastically changed. Like first, Dursi was meant to play an actor. Then he became a director, for instance. Uh, things changed around his mind. He wanted to go by this idea of uh, whether or not, you know, an idea comes first from the script and then you put it onto something visual that you can see. Or if you see it first and then you put it down. That, that's something he was trying to grasp at. And, I don't think that necessarily comes across from the film, but it's really interesting background information to have. Well, I haven't seen the scenario film. I, I have heard of it. It's listed on Godard's filmography. Uh, maybe that is something that I should be checking out, especially because I do consider this to be the best of his 80s films, although definitely quite close to the next film that we'll be discussing. I am so glad to hear that, so, so glad to hear that, because with Matthias' negativity earlier, I was worried the uh, Pernum Carmen or the first name Carmen would not be doing that well in this episode. Uh, and yes, you might actually really like Scenario uh, the Film Passion, because it's a, a lot more similar to his 70s work. It's much more like uh, his uh, video art, and, and it kind of works as a film on its own as well, and it's just around 48 minutes long or 54, something somewhere around that line. So definitely uh, something uh, uh, like a mini recommendation. But to, to move on to the film that I consider Godard's best film of the 80s, and which Mathieu consider Godard's worst film of the 80s, uh, to amp up the volume here, it is First Name Carmen. And this is a film that a lot of people are saying are a bit, is a bit of a return to form for Godard, where he's once again kind of playing with the building blocks of genre cinema. You have uh, lovers on the run, you have crime, you have heists, you have uh, <laughs> you have all of these kind of things, things that we see over and over and over again on film. And, and Godard kind of just redoes everything. He has this opening or semi-opening heist scene that just completely 
bonkers and, and, and almost surreal. And then when he takes us on a trip with the lovers, you have this kind of violence of the images and, and the sound effects. And, and the whole film is just accompanied essentially with this orchestra, which, which almost forms a, a counter-narrative that they do tie in with the film as well. And it, it, it's almost like the music or the soundscape takes the frontier. As, as someone who rarely cares that much about sound is usually far more about the visuals. This is those, that one of those films that just made me listen because uh, what could our dust with the soundscape in this film? You know, uh, he, he'll play the sound of waves instead of words when people are talking and then cut to, you know, the sea and then we hear dialogue. He'll build soundscapes so we're seeing something else co- consistently. And the, the music, like we talked about earlier, it's, it's all of those notes. Uh, where it can sh- shoot up or disappear, which, which is something we know of Godard even from the 60s. But but it, it's just such a large, large work. And, and to me, the reason why I love this film so much is that it, it might be one of his best, if not his his best example of just what can you do just with cinema itself. You have essentially this basic idea of, okay, all you need to make a film is a girl and a gun. You know, that, that famous quote he said in the 60s. And he just does that, but then he changes all of the notes around, and he, he creates something so different, so huge. Uh, I'm going to bring up some examples later as well, just utterly blew me away in how he managed, or like this basic idea behind it. But uh, uh, let, let's go on to Saul, because he likes it the second most, and then we can go on to negativity from Mathieu. Uh, apologies, Mathieu, and then we can go back to my enthusiasm. First Name Carmen is a really great film. I guess most of the reason why I would write Passion Above it is that I was a bit disappointed with it upon revision. But the main thing which disappointed me is for some reason I had mentally, I don't know, it's hard, so I got to throw in mind that John Luke Goddard had a much bigger role in the film. I mean, he has a pretty big role. He would have it's probably on the screen for at least a quarter of the film's running time. So he has got quite a big role in there. But I guess in my mind, because I enjoyed his performance so much, I had kind of remembered it having an even bigger part. But look, uh, he's definitely my most favourite aspect of the film. You've got Godard basically playing himself. He's playing a character called Uncle Jean, so it could actually be him himself. And he's this faded filmmaker, I guess a bit like, Goddard was by the 80s. I mean, you know, the peak of the uh, 60s was long behind him. So you've got this faded filmmaker who's given a chance by his favourite niece to make a film. But he's not actually really making a film. The niece has just got these criminal associates and they want to use his beach house. They want to get him to film on set or whatever. I think it's a bit of a distraction. And it's just really fun to have Goddard playing himself and playing a character that's getting deluded or getting duped, I guess, maybe, by these other people. And yet it's still got like, this real passion for cinema. So, you know, he's he's sitting there sort of like reviewing how these days are behind him. He really wants to get back into the, sw- the swing of things. And... You know, he's in a mental health facility, but he manages to check out to do the film. So I just thought it was a really great character for Godard to play, and I absolutely loved that uh, performance in there. Um, and look, there's other bits and pieces there which are quite interesting. I mean, there's a lot of uh, shots of classical music in there, like Chris mentioned. There's lots of nudity in there also. So, I mean, the sort of idea that I got with it is that in the film, 
Goddard has been duped or tricked by his niece into uh, making a film when he's actually not making a film. And then Goddard has actually managed to trick or dupe his cast uh, into making what would seem to be a heist film, but it actually isn't really a heist film. It's a film where Goddard really plays around with how we can use music and uh, nudity and other things and crushing waves to show beauty so it's not really a high film they've got the two sort of like uh dupes or tricks going on there which uh, i do find incredibly interesting and look look it is a great film it just didn't quite strike me the same way as, as, as i was expecting to the second time around and now for negativity well i don't know you know i was hoping that uh, listening to you guys talk about it would uh, explain the film to me but uh, I'm, I'm i guess i i guess i still don't really get it uh, it's an adaptation of a very very famous opera you didn't mention that right carmen and he is you know purposely playing around with music as you mentioned because he's not using the actual music right you you only hear the most famous theme from carmen a couple of times when um, minor characters are whistling it uh, but otherwise he's using this beethoven quartet And I just don't think it really works. Uh, you know, he is playing around with it, as you say, going back and forth be between music and the sound of waves and just cutting it very abruptly. And I just didn't derive any meaning from it. You know, most Godard films, they're either fun, right, in the way they play around with style and with form and playful. And I would say that's, that's his main characteristic, but right, is his playfulness. And I think in his 80s work, I don't find it playful anymore. I just find it jaded and cynical. Ooh. And I don't know why. Randomly cutting... Well, randomly. I'm, I say randomly. I don't know. But when he's seemingly randomly cutting the sound off, when he's doing that in the 60s, I think it's fun. And when he's doing that here, I think it's annoying. And I don't know why. I, I cannot explain to you why. It's just how it, how it comes off to me. The, the, the Carmen story is a very basic story. You mentioned, yeah, uh, a girl and a gun. Yeah, it's, it's, it's basically that. And it's, you know, this very big romantic story. And he does take that. But I just don't see why. I, I just don't know why he chose this story. I don't know what he's trying to say with it. And in the end, my favorite scene is uh, the scene, you know, where they're in the toilets. And there's, a, there's this guy who's played by a really famous and great French comedian, Jacques Villeray who's just eating mayonnaise, I think, out of a bowl uh, with his head. That's hilarious. It has nothing to do with anything else, as far as I can see, but it's very funny. <laughs> that, that was my favorite part, because I just didn't get this movie. That, that was the, the biggest surprise for me. Like, I completely forgot that Villeray had a cameo in this uh, film, and then suddenly this shows up in this kind of uh, gas station walking around, and he becomes a bigger part of the scene then. I think it's pretty much just comedic effect. They don't think he has a single line, but it's, it is the way he, he looks at them. It's hilarious. They're, they're uh, handcuffed together, and she says she has to go to the toilet in the pissoir, just pulling off her dress in the back. And he's just like standing there, staring at them while eating from a jar with his finger. And it's just <laughs> so bloody bizarre. And I, I completely disagree with you, Matthew, and that this feels uh, jaded because this is probably one of the films in the 80s that until he started doing full on comedies with films like uh, Keep You Right Up, which I thought was the most fun and the most freeing because it's really just going back to that 60s mode of this is the building blocks, I'm gonna just uh, mess around with this. I, I agree with you 
I know if people are reading a lot of things into this film and that there is something uh, like with passion and slow motion and his later films related, there is something transcendental there. There is something with gender roles, with masculine, feminine. Uh, there is something about determinism in there. there. There's a lot of grander ideas that people can really dive into. But uh, for me, what makes this my favorite of the 80s and one of my all-time favorite films is just that joy of discovery, of playing around, of essentially just changing the way the soundscape works. I think that the one thing that changed a little bit for me this time is actually where I disagree a little bit with Bissol, which is that I actually think Godard's portion is one of the weaker parts of the film because I think that it's comic relief, it's, but it's almost too much comedy. Like It's his kind of pioneering part of his idiot character, which we see again in uh, Keep You Right Up. But but it's you know he just randomly goes over to people, starts combing their hair. He starts has this little measuring thing where he he, he measures uh, money. It's quirky. It, it's funny. I, I love the film. I, I think I think it's hilarious portions in there. Uh, and I think there's this one scene where he's still at the, the hospital and uh, he has. It, he talks about, do you want to see my new camera? And he holds up this boombox, which is probably very metaphorical for the film itself, what he's doing with the soundscape. But the, the comedy is almost a little bit jarring with the rest of the film, which is just all of these kind of basic tropes that's just drawn down to the utterly sublime in how the sound works, how this man, this woman clash together and just the, the, the symphony of the music. But I still think Godard's portion works. I just, I don't see it as, you know, the film about Godard like, uh, <laughs> like, like, like uh, Saul does. So I guess the, how little his portion of the film is, it's, it's a negative for Saul. It's not necessarily a negative for me. I might just mention with Godard's character, I actually find it a bit of a logical, interesting progression character if you go back to the previous two films. So you've got a character called Godard and every man for himself who's a filmmaker. You've got a filmmaker protagonist who's uh, very much the main character in Passion. And then you've got Godard himself playing a filmmaker in uh, Prenom Carmen or first name Carmen. So I just think it's following that progression. You sort of like naming character after Godard. And you've got a character other than name could be Godard. And you've got Godard himself playing a character who could pretty much be himself. I think it's just a very interesting way of connecting all three films. To jump back on something you said, Chris, about the the, the emotion, I guess, of, of the main character, the main story that's very basic. I think maybe part of what made it not work so well for me is the actors. I think uh, Godard, is, you mentioned in the previous film, right, that Godard is not very interested in character. And I think that's true. And often what brings character is that the actors, they are interested in that. And these are not great actors, I think, in Prénom Carmen. I mean, they're not big movie stars, which doesn't mean anything, but I just don't think they're very good in this movie. And in a lot of these other movies in the 80s, he has these enormously charismatic performers on screen who do a lot of work, I think, kind of for him. And I think that's not the case here. But what did you, what did you guys think of the performances? I actually see what you mean there. I, I, I love both actors in the film, but not as actors. I, I think it, it's almost a little bit like uh, Bresson in that they become more representative of, of something or, you, you know, you read something into them. I think whereas Bresson kind of just tears them down into something monotone, Godard kind of tries to see some idea 
from them, some representation. And I just think that their charisma and just the tension between them is just rapturous. Like uh, you mentioned the, the scene at, uh, at the toilet. I, I can mention the scene when they first come to the apartment as well. And they're, they're slamming into each other and, and moving things around. That's something that keeps happening throughout the film. And I, I just think that their, their body language uh, and just their uh, dynamic is something that's really strong within the film. But I mean, if you're looking for strong performances or characters, I mean, this is definitely not it. And I think what you're talking about, where he has all of these other huge stars and just wonderful actors in other films that kind of bring the films to a slightly different direction. I, I, I can definitely see what you mean. And I can see why those films would work better for you. Yeah, I guess I just didn't see the, the passion, I suppose, because this is really a key, key idea in this story. And it's not, I didn't feel it in the music and I didn't really see it in the, neither in the performances nor in the way that Godard shoots it. I, I, I felt like it, he was a bit, not disinterested, but interested in something else, I suppose. That, and I think that might even be true. And I, th I think that that's maybe why that film works so well for me and uh, less, less for you. Yeah, but then I don't get what you think the film is about. Or, or is that irrelevant? Um, well, I, I think when we go back to the building blocks of cinema, you kind of just have these lovers on the run and you kind of have this, like I said, I, I see the passion. I, I see uh, the tension between them. I, 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 that's one of the things that really appeals to me with this film because the actors really bring on the charisma and it kind of takes away all of the traditional uh, tropes. It takes away all of the realism, if you will, of, you know, these lovers on the run, if, even just how they meet, like nothing plays out in a realistic fashion of how one of these heist films work. But I think it still kind of brings that essence essence of the story to life with a degree of grandeur. So I, I see a grandeur that, that uh, you don't. I, I think they really work. And I think that while I didn't necessarily get invested in the characters, I did get really invested in like the story or, or the essence of the story, if you will. I think it still managed to grab that for me. So uh, another place that we differ, I suppose. I guess you could compare it a little bit to, say, uh, the film that Bresson made the, the, the same year, Largent, where, you know, the performances are, are completely stripped down. You don't really have characters, but you still kind of feel tension between the ideas and what they represent. Like, I, I actually feel very similarly in this film. I think, well, completely different filmmakers and, and approaches, I think they managed to, at least for me, grab something that appealed to me in a similar way. Though, obviously, Bresson is something that reflects on uh, more on society and Godard is something that's more, um, I'm not sure iconographic is the right thing, but representational, for sure. I'm probably just going to end up repeating myself, but in terms of what I feel the film was about, I, I do think the Godard character is a very central, very important part of it. And I just think it's sort of about movies and how movies can be said to be made for one purpose, but actually might be made for a different purpose or with ulterior motives in there. So you've got, you know, you know, the niece trying to ask her uncle to be in this film, but she doesn't actually really want to make a film. And then you've got Godard, who's got his cast together to make this heist film, but then he doesn't actually want to make a heist film. So I just find that all really interesting. I don't know what it actually says beyond the fact that cinema, I guess, can mean different things, different people have different purposes for different people. Yeah, okay. Fair enough. <laughs> I guess we, we can move on to, to the next one. I, I want to really bring up one more thing, though, because I think this is an, an example of what I really love and impresses me uh, about this film. And it's one of the scenes that's not talked about that much. I mean, maybe, maybe you guys didn't even notice it, and maybe it doesn't work for that many people. But there's this one scene relatively early in the film where our male lead and uh, the woman who plays uh, Claire and uh, I believe her, her brother, essentially two of the the band members or the orchestra members, they, they're in a car together. Uh, the, the way this scene is shot is essentially just have a static camera, it shoots a road, 
and cars are just passing by, they enter the frame and they leave the frame. And while this is happening, uh, the characters are having a conversation, but we're not following their car, we're not seeing the inside of the car. None of these cars in the world might even be necessarily be their car, but you have like the soundscape of, you know, they stop, one of them, uh, like it goes out, they leave, you have the full conversation. It's just one of those things that's so unique uh, about this film. And we talk about the soundscape again with images and sounds differing, but you also have here with this image, instead of just showing something normally, he kind of shows the representation of the setting, or maybe just the idea of movement. I discussed this once with uh, some people over at the John Luke Couture Appreciation Society uh, and the administrator of that, uh, Gordon Remenko, he, ma- he mentioned that it's also kind of like this idea of determinism where, you know, the cars just pass and disappear. But but this scene to me, it's, it feels just so striking just how differently can you do a film? And it tying back to what they did in the 70s too, with just the image being representative of something else or just being representative of what's happening there. I just thought that scene worked so brilliantly. And it's just, just an example of just one of those ways that Godard kind of reimagines what cinema can be. Yeah, I don't know. I, I guess I just didn't didn't connect with this movie. So so I, 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 that scene did not particularly register to me. I'm sorry, Chris. <laughs> No worries, Matthew. And with that, then we can move on to Godard. I'm not sure if it's his biggest film of the 80s. I'll have to look into that. But it's certainly his most frequently talked about, his most controversial, uh, possibly his most well known. And that is Hail Mary. His look at the story of Virgin Mary set in modern day. It's uh, <laughs> very compressed. It's one of the shortest films of the 80s. Uh, official time on uh, IMDb says it's 72 minutes. I think the version I saw was around 80 minutes. It's his second film without any really big stars in the lead, though a young Juliette Binoche can be spotted as a kind of uh, secondary love interest for Joseph. <laughs> but this is a film that there's just so much to talk about. It's, it's the last film of what it was called, the trilogy of the sublime, the other two being Passion and uh, First Name Carmen. It is very compressed in, in, in some ways, very down to basics for Godard, it's, but with similar ideas of the soundscape. And just no real suspense of <laughs> disbelief, if you will, if that even makes sense. Like, uh, Mary works at a uh, gas uh, station. Uh, the angels almost look a little bit like semi-hobos or drifters. Uh, Joseph is just this cab driver who's way too old for, uh, for, for Mary. And he's also infatuated with another woman. And, uh, and Mary spends most of the film while pregnant walking around. Well, not most of the film, but the part of the film walking around nude with, you know, no belly whatsoever. It's a film that's considered extremely blasphemous. It's also a film with some really stunning visuals and ideas. Where would you guys place it in the canon of Godard's 80s films? I'd probably place it somewhere in the middle. I mean, maybe towards the top half. I mean, I definitely liked it a lot more than King Lear and Detective. Probably liked it about the same as Every Man for Himself, but not as much as Passion and First Name Carmen. Oh, and I, I liked it. Oh, actually, I don't know. I'm not sure about Keep Your Eye because it's a very different one, so I don't have to even compare it to that one. But look, I'd say somewhere in the middle. I feel kind of similarly about this one as I do to Prénom Carmen, though I like this one a bit more. I think there are individual elements uh, elements in there that, that I like. 
my kind of pithy and uh, mean summary of it would be that it's a failed attempt at being Tarkovsky. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, 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 it's, the similarity to Prénom Carmen is that, once again, I'm not sure what Godard wants to do with this story. And it's, you know, a very famous story. And I don't know, beside the shock value, I don't exactly know what his point is. That that's uh, that's a good point. That's why I, I first of all I can see the comparison really well. Like we mentioned, they they're kind of part of the same trilogy of sorts, and they're they're once again really similar. And they're kind of stretching out and trying to grasp out for something grander. And I'm also kind of agreeing with you that I'm not hundred percent sure of what Godard is looking for. Was it made purely as a provocation? I I don't necessarily think so. I think he's looking to grab something. I, I saw the short uh, documentary that's kind of like an accompanying piece to this, but that was made before the film was made and it plays with different ideas. But here he's kind of trying to style the actress, Mariam Russell, who was also in the, the two previous films. After paintings, for instance, a bit similar to his ideas from Passion. So, so he is trying to kind of look at images again, but... Uh, I, I agree with you. You don't necessarily know exactly what it is trying to be about and what it's reaching out for. I, I do think it's stunning. I love the filmmaking here. Uh, I, I love the way he plays, again, with many of the same notes. It's, it's very similar to his other films in terms of just how sound works, how the visuals work, how, how characters move, how they talk, how you know people might suddenly shout etc that that's something we know and lo love or maybe not love for all of you but something we know very well from Godard uh, I don't see the Tarkovsky comparison once again I'm actually kind of thinking about Bresson a little bit uh, I kind of thinking about this more representational uh, imagery these ideas you read you read into them uh, I did just think that was often beautiful but the, the full meaning of it escapes me as well so, so I thought of Tarkovsky for two reasons. The most obvious one is this is a very, you know, it's, it's a film about spirituality in some way, about Christianity. And of course, Tarkovsky is a Christian and spiritual filmmaker. But also there are shots that keep coming back in this movie about uh, of a garden, I think. And you see kind of the grass moving in the wind. And that, to me, it, it, it strikes me as a very Tarkovsky shot. Uh, I, I don't know. Mm. But, you know, it's kind of a joke as well. <laughs> I, uh, this one is <laughs> probably a bit, a bit closer. And the funny thing about it being blasphemous is that there's nothing that blasphemous in the film. I mean, it's not... Uh, I keep thinking of The Last Temptation of Christ uh, because uh, mm. it has nothing to do with this movie, really. But it's a very a, blas a film that was judged blas blasphemous in a kind of similar time period. Right? It's within five years of this film, I think. And I don't think it would really happen today, by the way. But anyway... You know, I see why people think Scorsese's film is blasphemous, even though he's a Christian filmmaker, he's making, he's exploring this story in a way that is very spiritual to him and, and, and very makes sense within Christian faith, I think, uh, well, at least his faith. But in this case, I think people see it as blasphemous just because Godard doesn't appear to be that interested. I, <laughs> I don't know. I, again, as you say, it's, it's kind of mysterious what he means to do. And so in the end, the version of the story he gives us is, is essentially the story of the virgin birth. I mean, you have a virgin birth, and it is basically the point of the film that, yes, it is a virgin birth. And he even espouses ideas, or seems to, that desire is dangerous, right? That uh, the man should not touch the woman that kind of makes her impure or something. And I, 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 at any point, I don't know if he's being ironic or not, right? And I think that's why... <laughs> People thought it was blasphemous because I think people couldn't take it seriously from coming from him. 
But at the same time, I'm, there's no indication that it's sarcastic, except maybe towards the end. And if it is, I don't know why. Right? That, that's my frustration with this film. Now, that's a good point. I don't actually know uh, Godard's religion at all. I mean, I mean, he was a Marxist, so that usually yeah. goes against religion. But he's clearly trying to grasp at something that is of a kind of transcendental religious nature here. And like, I actually agree with you. It, it seems, at least in part, honest. I mean, obviously, you have that already seems to talk about kind of like <laughs> sort of this extraterrestrial commentary as well. Actually, that is one of the things that is most re- religious, I think, in this, well, pointing mm-hmm. most towards religion, because he says, basically his argument, which I think is kind of an inane argument, but whatever, <laughs> is that, uh, oh, evolution couldn't happen because it takes too much time, whatever. So life came from outside and it came from an intelligent being, right? That's kind of the whole point that this kind of scientist is making that, oh, life has been created by another entity. And so obviously, if you're a religious person, that other entity would be God, right? Mm. At least that's how I interpreted it. I thought actually that sequence with the Rubik's Cube, right, and using Bach, I think that was aesthetically my favorite sequence in the, in the film. So I actually think I understand why the film is considered blasphemous. I mean, the whole film is about immaculate conception, that she's never slept with a man or apparently has never slept with a man and yet has given birth. And if she hasn't been impregnated by another man, if it's a virgin birth, then yeah, it's obviously it's it's got connotations to Jesus. So um, I, I understand the blasphemy in there. Uh, I do think it's quite interesting, though, and Chris did mention it because the film is full of shots of her wandering around half naked with a flat belly, and I think that's on purpose. I mean, for me, I think the purpose of the film, it's about faith. So it's the idea that we have to have faith that she actually really is pregnant, even though she doesn't look pregnant. I think it's very important that she's walking around half nude. But, you know, even those half-nude things or whatever, you've got to carry on that from first-name Carmen. You've got shots of Carmen with, like, uh, no bottoms on or whatever, and the boyfriend saying, I love you, and, like, just looking at a bush, like, not looking at anything above there. So it does follow on to what Goddard has done before, and he's, he's using it in a different context. And, yeah, look, I just find it's a really interesting launching point for a film to have this other immaculate conception um, ideas in there. And like one mature said, the extraterrestrials conversation is incredibly interesting. What's most interesting about that scene is it begins off with the shot of the back of someone's head. And the guy's hairstyle, the student's hairstyle is absolutely crazy. He looks like an extraterrestrial while the lecturer is talking about extraterrestrials. So there's a little bit of our comedy in there, a little bit of Goddard poking fun at things. So he's sort of making light of the idea that life might have come from somewhere else, while he's also making, I guess, a bit of light of the idea about immaculate conception. So, yeah, I understand why it's considered blasphemous, but I guess for me that's probably the most uh, interesting thing for me about the film, that it's about this test of faith. You know, do we believe her that she hasn't been with a man? Do we believe her that she's actually pregnant, where Godard presents all the evidence to us that she doesn't look pregnant at all? And look, um, I did say that it wasn't a top tier 80s Goddard film for me. It did go down in my esteem on rewatch, I guess, because I, I sort of felt by halfway through the film had made all of its pertinent points regarding faith and immaculate conception and extraterrestrials. So I felt, you know, a bit antsy towards the end as it kept going on. But I do think, yeah, there's a lot going on in there. And I really like the view of faith that Goddard presents us with. So just at the risk of being needlessly pedantic, <laughs> I will say that 
Immaculate Conception is not that. Uh, that's virgin birth. But the, the idea of Mary having Jesus without having sex, that's a virgin birth. Immaculate Conception is a thing that was invented in the 19th century, and it's about uh, Mary being born without original sin. Right? So that's another idea that... I mean, he, Godard does kind of do, do the original sin here, because he has a character named Eve biting into an apple. <laughs> so that's obviously very significant. But anyway, your general point, uh, I think the fact of showing M Mary without pregnant belly, right, uh, obviously, I thought that was about, oh, he, he, you do not represent God on screen or something like that, kind of him playing around with that idea. But then we see Jesus at the end of the film. We see the, the, the son who is presumably Jesus. So I, I don't... I didn't know what, what to make of it in the end. Mm. Yeah, I didn't actually think there was that much of a test of fate either because you have the angels coming. I mean, there is a question of whether or not she's pregnant, but uh, I, I think it's semi-clear or di direct in that regard. And yeah, th th thank you for bringing up, first of all, explaining the idea of a macro conception like that because that, that was something I was unaware of. I thought they actually were synonymous. The, the portion with Eve now makes much more sense. I, I actually felt like the sections with Eve and the professor could have been cut. I mean, I guess the professor perhaps represents, I thought Adam at first, maybe he's God or maybe he's something else. Who knows? But I, I thought those scenes could actually have been cut to make for a more uh, direct and interesting focus on Mary. But that adds a lot. So, so thank you for that, uh, that Mathieu. That actually makes the film more interesting to me and I kind of want to go, go back to it again uh, now just to see the ideas he's playing with there I, I think that I think the idea is that the reason why the film is uh, seen as blasphemous besides the fact that you know you don't really know to what extent Godard is serious or not granted obviously Pasolini made the gospel according to Matthew as well and he was obviously a devout atheist and a Marxist as well and that film is beloved by Christians and I think I think the re one of the reasons why the film is seen as controversial and blasphemous is just because you see uh, Mary in what can be seen as a sexual context even though there's it's never really a sexual context in, in that way we kind of read that into it or Godard wants us to read that into it who knows but yeah, I agree that the, the focus on the body, the focus on like the relationship between Mary and Joseph, that's all really interesting. That's another reason why this film kind of makes me think of Bresson a little bit. I also thought of one of those directors who's most inspired by Bresson, uh, Eugene Green. Like just this kind of way of just stripping things down, such a bare bond element and this kind of it, yes, it plays a little bit funny. Yes, it plays a little bit off, but there is something more transcendental behind it. it I, I think it works. I think there's something grander there, but uh, like I said, I can't fully grasp it. So you keep mentioning Bresson in this episode, and I was trying to figure out why I'd never thought of him, right? Watching these films, he never once came to mind. And I see why, why you're mentioning him. But I think the reason he didn't come to mind for me is because these films are so scattered, right? And Bresson's films are so focused. Yes, you're right. And I think that's why I cannot really get into this film as a Bre like in the same way I would in a Bresson film, right? Because Bresson, you, you don't have you don't have this issue of oh, if this is this sarcastic or not, right? You do not have this issue with Bresson, and I think that's why I had a lot more trouble with this one. And also, I uh, one thing that I had in my notes is that I was a little disappointed, just stylistically, in the way Godard represents God in this film, right? Because he has these shots that are clearly meant to represent God or something like that, where he just shoots the sun or the moon. And I think that's just kind of a little unimaginative for him. What, what did you think about that? I can agree with that to an extent. Yeah, I mean, come on, you, you're, you're the guy who keeps inventing stuff. I mean, that's not... <laughs> 
I mean, I do think he's presenting like nature, like he's mentioned earlier, he's shooting nature in general too. So it's it's a larger, larger idea. But yes, it's it's a little bit like I could say more basic than what you'd almost expect from Godard. We are now changing this podcast into a Bresson podcast because Saul has revealed that he has not watched a single Bresson film and we are now going to shame him for it and try to convince him to change that. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, look, that's that's old news. I mean, if you go back to the uh, podcast, the amount of films that we've avoided, I, I did make mention there quite clearly that I haven't seen any Bresson films. I mean, mainly because when I was first getting into cinema in the early 2000s, they weren't available. They weren't out on DVD here but they've become more available. And since then, I've found that I really don't like film minimalism. I, I absolutely hate it. So I, I can't see any point in me seeing Bresson films. Well, you should at least try a Manuscaped. Yes, I agree with that, yeah. I mean, if you have a podcast in Bresson, you can listen in and, <laughs> if you haven't, and, and see if any of the films appeal to you. I think the 40s films in particular are not that minimalist. Uh, they might work in a manuscript. It's just so tense as well. It might work. But yeah, if you don't like minimalism at all, either Bresson is not for you or uh, he might convert you. Who knows? And I guess I guess this is why Godard and Atis works a lot better because, yeah, Godard is not Bresson. They have completely different ideas. They work with cinema differently. And like what you uh, said, uh, Godard's films here are really scattered. They're hectic. There's very little of this kind of slow serenity, if you will. Yes, he kind of has these similar things where, you know, you have hands in these films doing a lot of intuitive action or representative action, for instance, but there's just so much going on with the soundscape and with the cutting that Godard uses cinematic techniques to just kind of never, never let you go. It's just a constant symphony of these little playful techniques. And but that just keeps our attention, and Bresson is not that. So I, I don't, even though uh, these films, to me, have really strong minimalist elements in them, it can't really be accused of being minimalist, or, or at least not in a conventional way. It, it might be interesting, then, to continue on to the last of the key films we'll be discussing today, Detective, from 1985, which, while it still uses all of those techniques we've been talking about earlier, with soundscape, editing, people shouting, uh, it has all of that. It, it may be Godard, I'm not going to say conventional, but maybe, maybe, this, maybe this is more conventional film of the 80s, it's the most linear film of the 80s. Uh, you have this hotel, you have all of these characters, it's a crime film, once again you have all of these building blocks you recognize, you simply just follow the story as it progresses, there's a lot of pun in there, it's actually marked as a comedy, which I'm not sure if I would fully call it a comedy, but it's, it's constantly or frequently funny, it's a lot of idiosyncrasies in there, but Essentially, you have the, a boxing promoter or this, you know, this presenter of boxers. He's in, he's in trouble with the mob. He's in trouble with loan sharks everywhere. You have this couple who's loaned him 40 million francs, want it back. You have uh, the mob. They're there. They want their money back. And everything's kind of ticking towards this big boxing match uh, where he may be able to make his uh, money back. Oh, and all while this is happening, you have a detective, his nephew and his nephew's fiance, who's kind of trying to solve a murder that happened uh, two years previously. Once again, you have a couple of reunions here. Jean-Pierre Leroy is back as the nephew. 
You have Natalie Bay. Uh, she's back after working with him previously in slow motion. And then you have, you know, Alan Cooney. You have uh, Johnny Holiday coming in. You, you actually have uh, Emmanuel Sanier and Julie Delphi in, in there as well in uh, some of smaller roles. It's one of its films that are liked the least. It has a 5.7 on IMDb. But uh, all the same, it's actually one of my favorite uh, Godard films from the 80s. So, so I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. I mentioned the playful side of Godard being a little missing for me, or at least not playing in the same way. I think I find it back a bit with Detective, with how he's playing with the conventions of film noir and what we call in France polar. What uh, polar is, I guess, means um, police film or detective film or crime film. And you see uh, with, with the whole scene, right, with the people, the, the characters who are observing the action, right? They have a whole bunch of books that are all from the most famous crime novel collection, right, in France. So he's, he's clearly playing around with this genre. And I, I kind of like the whole distinction between stars and actors. Uh, I think, you know, we talked about it a bit earlier, but I think movie stars are really good for Godard <laughs> because they do, they just do a lot of work that he's not interested in doing and they do add a lot, I think. What's most successful in this film to me is the whole uh, scene, the whole thing between Nathalie Baye, Claude Brasseur, and Johnny Hallyday, who's not really an actor, but he's like a huge, huge star in France, uh, a singer. And kind of like Jacques Dutronc, actually. I mean, again, Godard working with stars is, is good for him. I think he mostly did it for the financing, but I think it, it does good things for his movies as well. And yeah, I had a little bit more fun with this one. A little bit. Uh, I, I still think it's just so disjointed it's so hard to know exactly what he's trying to say about film noir but it's just a genre he's so familiar with because it's what he grew up watching that he he knows the genre in and out and so he is constantly referencing stuff and there's there's a lot of fun in that i find i don't know that i love the way he uses music in this film it's obviously very confrontational and seemingly random <laughs> I, I don't know if it really is but it probably isn't but i, I guess I, I had a hard time deciphering exactly what uh, what was meant by it. I haven't actually seen Detective in 14 years, and uh, it's not a film I'm actually excited to rewatch because unlike Passion and First Name Carmen, which did make quite an impression on me when I saw them 10 to 15 years ago, Detective is one which I guess to me just felt like Godard experimenting with things rather than you know, telling a story. I mean, not that Godard's a narrative filmmaker. None of his films are like traditional narratives, or very few are at least. However, you get something like Passion or First Name Come, and there's definitely a story going on in there. Whereas I guess I found it harder to put together with Detective. I just remember the mystery. I remember there was a, the, the eventual solution to it. I just remember finding it absolutely ridiculous. And uh, yeah, it just didn't satisfy me at all so i mean I, there's some things i remember like lots of close-ups in there obviously the music choices which godard was really big in the 80s experimenting with how to put music into film but yeah the whole thing to me just unfortunately didn't quite work i think you're completely right so and what it is because unless someone wants to tell me otherwise i'm sure there might be some interpretation going in there this feels like a film godard did without any ideas of like the kind of grandeur transcendentalism whatever you want to call it, that he kind of did in the trilogy of the sublime or he did in slow motion. I don't feel like he's trying to grasp for something bigger. It really just feels like what he did with Prindom Carbon, but without that in, in terms of just, this is a crime story, this is a film noir, whatever you want to call it. These are the building blocks. I'm going to just 
play around with it and do my own thing with it and, and see how it kind of stacks out. And uh, that, for me, that's a really enjoyable thing because I just love the way that Godard plays with these building blocks. And I think he managed to create something that's extremely atmospheric, really funny, really playful, just keeps you engaged. It's frequently just silly. Uh, <laughs> like, they're all this hilarious in this film. There's, uh, all, there's all of this fussing around. There's all these, these things that are just really atmospheric. I think Alain Tuny, as the old mafioso, as this, or, or it's often called the prince, he's just really imposing, kind of wandering around. But it's just a ridiculous, ridiculous uh, film. You have those building blocks, you have those tropes, and then... It's what Godard does with the filmmaking, what he does, does with the shots, what he does with these kind of ridiculous moments. Like the boxers were saying, I think, what was his name again? Uh, Tiger Jones, I'll knock him out. Just repeat, like the boxers keeps repeating that, and I think not the Bay asks, like, isn't his name, isn't he Tiger Jones? <laughs> it's funny, it's, uh, to me, it's fairly fresh, but, but I guess it could also be a bit basic to people who have started to, you know, love Godard's other sides. So I, I can see why it's, it has a low rating, but I just really love and enjoy this film. It, it, it's a proper ride, I'd say. Yeah, I guess it's kind of in the middle in that it's not that meaningful or it's, it's hard to de- derive meaning from it. And at the same time, it's, it's playful, but it's not as fun as, you know, Godard's work in the 60s, just because he's an old man and it's difficult to make the same, to have the same kind <laughs> of energy when you're an old man. I, I, just, I just think, unfortunately, that is true for most people, maybe not everyone, but. And yeah, it's it's a film of moments, right? You will enjoy it depending on how much you enjoy the moments. And as you said, I think the mob boss, the prince, is is a standout. I don't know this this actor at all, which is which is kind of remarkable given how many famous people in in this movie. I don't think Julie Delpy was famous at all when she made this, but she she she's famous now. I guess I don't have that much more to say. It's it's very uneven as a film, but you might enjoy it if you enjoy. Uh, just to go down, if you think you will enjoy just go down riffing on the idea of a crime movie. Yeah, I think that's that's pretty much it, Matthew. If, if you think you'll enjoy Godard riffing on crime movies, this will be for you. I actually think it has the fun and playfulness of his uh, 60 films. It's different, but to me, they're on par, to be honest. I don't think he feels old, but he is obviously more than 20 years older uh, than you know, when he made his earliest films. So time does fly. I don't want to be ageist, sorry. He's <laughs> just, he, I, I, there is a melancholy, a, a sadness that I feel in his work in the 80s that I didn't feel in his 60s. In his 60s, I felt more anger, right? But maybe that's me projecting, I don't know. Oh, if, if, did you say they hadn't seen anything by Alan Cooney, by the way? I, I don't recognize him. Maybe oh, I've seen him. He was, like, he was working with, uh, for instance, Marshall Carnet. Like, what was it called again? Visitors du Soir? Oh, Les Visiteurs du Soir. I haven't seen that. So, yeah, oh, okay. right. Yeah, that, you really should see that. That's just absolutely phenomenal. I, anyways, he, I think he's more famous for his face and his gestures, making him really fitting for, for Godard. <laughs> but, <laughs> but yeah, no, like, like, we, like we said, if you just want something riffing on the tropes, if you want something that's kind of takes the building blocks you know, but shoots them in different ways, like completely unique shot compositions, all of the things you like with Godard, but it's not as experimental. It's a little bit more linear. This film will possibly be for, for you. And with that, we're through the five films we were going to talk about today. Um, but obviously, he made a lot more films in uh, the 80s. Are there any other standouts or shoutouts uh, you want to give for, uh, for his 80s filmography? The, the only fe- other features that I've seen from Godard from the 80s are King Lear and Keep Your Eyes Up. 
Neither of those entirely worked for me, and I didn't really have any interest in rewatching them. Although that said, I actually do have both of those rated higher than Detective. So unfortunately, to end off on that note, Detective actually is my least favorite Goddard film from the 80s. So I just mentioned, I, I, I sadly haven't seen anything else. I should probably watch Histoire du Cinéma one day, but uh, it is a Ooh. little scary. Yes, I mean, I, I would uh, love to rewatch that. And if we, we could probably do an episode on Histoire du Cinéma, I would love to just uh, <laughs> just dive into that fully. Uh, for me, I, I like like I mentioned, like Godard is my favorite director. I've seen most or essentially everything. I've seen everything he directed uh, in the 80s that's available with uh, subtitles, except his uh, portion of uh, Aria and a couple of Forge. One of my uh, favorites from him is actually a, a TV movie called The Grandeur et Decadence, or Grandeur and Decadence. I think it's also called The Rise and Fall of a Small Movie Company, where he's working with uh, actually uh, Leon again. It's the same year or the year after he did The Detective. It's kind of placed with the filmmaking again. It plays with crime as, as well, uh, and it's, it's just a really fun riff. A lot like Detective, essentially. It's just him playing around with ideas. And it's just a lot of fun. And unlike Soul, I love King Lear. Uh, that's a film I haven't seen in a long time. It used to be one of my favorites from Godard. Uh, so many scenes from that film is just burned into my mind. Like, uh, she didn't say nothing. She said no thing. Or one of the most hilarious uh, running jokes in a Godard film is the girlfriend who just wasn't there. <laughs> like, there's this character, and it's, like, I think it's the narrator who says something like, he was walking around with his girlfriend, and you see this guy walking with no one around him, and, says, and she wasn't there. <laughs> I think <laughs> like, those, those, are, those are really funny. I, I, I do like Keep You Right Up as well. It's Godard trying to do Tati. Uh, that's just for the fun of it. And I rewatched Soft and Hard, which is one of the few films Godard did with me, Will, um, in the 80s, uh, which is just like this shorter, playful uh, documentary, which has some really fun sections, and also just the two of them talking for a long time and giving some thoughts about their work. And they did an essay film, which is the report to Darty, which it's almost never talked about, but I really loved. So essentially just shouting out everything he did from the 80s um, as a very, very biased fan. I might just mention that I have actually seen Aria. I completely forgot about that because that was done by, I think, eight or ten different directors. I don't really remember much about it overall because, you know, it's going back 10 or 15 years ago. I do remember with Goddard's uh, segment, there were a lot of uh, bodybuilders and naked bodies in there, which is like quintessential Goddard. So it probably fits in well alongside his other films. Which have, lot, which have lots of partial nudity in there, but yeah, I just can't vividly recall it. Although I would recommend Aria overall. I did, I did leave with a quite a strong impression of the film. I did enjoy it. I just can't remember too much of it offhand. Yeah, I should definitely just sit down and watch Aria at some point. I, I tend to have this issue with omnibus films. I just delay them, even if the, it's a director I love that made one of them. Uh, but yeah, I definitely need to, need to change that to just fully live, on to my, live up to my overly enthusiastic uh, fanboy status. And uh, with that, I, I guess our episode on uh, Godard's work in the 80s is uh, done. I, mean, I, think, I think it's good to get uh, like this mix of reactions because 
perhaps less so than with our 70s works. This is why it was so surprising that we all actually really, really enjoyed the stuff we did in the 70s, um, which kind of been written off, uh, generally just not talked about. That's where we, we all connected with the work. But here in the 80s, which is kind of like this comeback system, we're a bit more diverse. But I think I think what a very good conversation. And it, it's good to you know, note that these films are definitely not for everyone, even a lot of Godard fans, the people who love his 60s work, just tend to say that they struggle with uh, <laughs> with his 80s work. So I'm glad at least both of you guys still really enjoyed most of or all of these films. And I'm glad we managed to get such a fun episode out of it. So uh, I hope you listeners out there uh, got something out of this too, that uh, if you haven't seen some of these, you'll check them out if they sound uh, interesting to you. And uh, thank you so much for listening. Join us again soon. You have been listening to Talking Images, the official podcast of ICMforum.com. <laughs>